Welcome to Fit Body Happy Joints. I am your host, Shannon. Today, we have a guest, and Dr. Natasha is going to talk about the nervous system and really the mind-muscle, mind-body connection. And we hear that a lot. We hear that term, that phrase a lot in the fitness world, but really, what does it mean? We're going to break down the anatomy a little bit, and we're also going to talk about what that means in relationship to your fitness and how you can use that to improve your fitness and reduce your risk of injury. First off, I want to say that although I'm a physical therapist and Natasha is a medical doctor, this is not medical advice. And I also don't love to talk about pain that much. And we touch on pain a little bit in this podcast, but you know, since I am a physical therapist, I don't want my messaging to be confused as like rehab and physical therapy. I really want this podcast and my content to focus more on how we can use the tools that I've learned in my my physical therapy education and beyond and apply that into a fitness routine that's really sustainable and effective. So I think that that podcast, this podcast does that very well, but I just wanted to go ahead and give that disclaimer that this is not about rehabilitation. This is not about PT. This is more about how can we use these tools and create a better fitness routine. So Dr. Natasha, She is a medical doctor trained in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. She strives to improve her patient's quality of life by focusing on brain and body health with the ultimate goal of achieving longevity in pain-free movement. Natasha completed medical school in the Midwest, residency on the East Coast, and fellowship on the West Coast. It's kind of like me. I'm from Kansas, then we went to North Carolina, then we came here. She holds an additional certification in lifestyle medicine. In her clinical practice, she treats patients who are rehabilitating from a stroke or a brain injury or spinal cord injury, neuromuscular disorder, or chronic pain. So although she treats all of those complicated things, we're going to use her expertise and her knowledge today to apply it more to the general fitness population. So without further ado, welcome, Natasha. I am so excited to be here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I've always been a fan of your company and your mission and um, what you're doing in the fitness space is awesome. Oh, well, thank you. I, I think what you're doing is awesome as well. And I introduced you with your little bio, but I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with physical medicine and rehabilitation. So can you kind of talk about that just a little bit before we dive into more detailed stuff and what kind of patients you see? Yeah, absolutely. I think physical medicine and rehabilitation or PM and R sometimes we say it really fast, like PM and R, um, it's a really small field and, uh, it's really misunderstood. I mean, many of us feel that we spend most of our time, not most of our time, but some of our time explaining what it is we actually do. And so we focus on optimizing function and abilities for patients. And we work primarily with people who've had impairments or disabling conditions like arthritis or nervous system injury. The goal is to maximize function and quality of life. Amazing. So what, what would a typical treatment session look like for you? So it's very much like going to the doctor. So I think we often get confused with, um, like physical therapists. We're also known as physiatrists. And so sometimes people think we're psychiatrists, um, but they come, it's just like going to the doctor. Um, we went to medical school. We have usually MDs or DOs behind our name. We'll do a history, a physical exam, um, give you a sense of if you need any lab work or any further imaging, and then give you a sense of plan. And oftentimes our plan involves therapists, right? And we really lean on our therapists for their expertise in therapeutic exercise, but also diagnostics because people see their therapist way more than they see their doctor oftentimes. And so we work together as a team. I like to think of myself more of a 
ability doctor than a disability doctor though, because I'm always looking for ways to optimize the ability that is available to someone. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Well, I think, I think our audience, um, can relate to some of this. I think, you know, we tend to, our audience tends to be like very active individuals and sometimes with an active lifestyle comes things like arthritis down the road. Mm -hmm. And so like part of my mission is trying to figure out how can we get you fit and keep you active while minimizing that. So Mm -hmm. I think what you're doing is awesome. You are kind of doing the same thing, but just in a different way. Like you're really trying Mm -hmm. to maximize people's, um, abilities, um, which I think is just so awesome. So yeah, no, right back at you. I feel like we work really well together, which is why we connected this way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Cool. Well, um, let's get into it. So today we're going to talk about the nervous system a little bit, and this is one of my favorite topics. And to be quite honest with you, there is so much to learn about the nervous system. I think there's so much that we still haven't even uncovered. Um, scientists haven't even uncovered. So I think we're just scratching the surface with our discussions about the nervous system. So we're going to get a little detailed today about that. So can you start by just doing a quick anatomy review of the nervous system? Yeah. So I will keep things simple. I totally agree with you that it can get really complex and that's not the goal here. Um, but I'll try to describe it in the simplest terms. So I'll start at the brain. And when we talk, think about the brain, we think about the cerebrum or cerebral cortex, which are the four lobes, frontal, parietal, occipital, temporal lobe, and each of them have their own unique functions, but they're very much integrated together to one another. Then you have the cerebellum, which is a relatively smaller area underneath the cerebrum. And that is most known for modulating proprioception. It's actually a very large integration center as well. And so for simplicity's sake, I'll skip over some subcortical structures like the thalamus and basal ganglia, which are important for movement and cognition, and also the neuroendocrine areas of the brain. So where we think about hormones like hypothalamus, pituitary, and pineal gland. So after all that, we have the brainstem which holds the cell bodies for our cranial nerves, the nerves of the face and the throat. And then the brainstem also modulates the autonomic nervous system. And the reason I wanted to mention that here is because I love the post you just did on the CO2 tolerance test. Yes. This past week. Yes. And so I wanted to mention that here because we're not, we weren't planning on getting into it later, but I think it is really important in terms of fitness and recovery. So the autonomic nervous system is composed of the parasympathetic or rest, digest, deactivating system and the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, more activating systems of our body. And they control the functions that are necessary for life, like breathing, your heart beating, your bowel and bladder function. So CO2 tolerance test is this test that can give you a sense of what is your autonomic nervous system doing? Are you recovered enough to take on activity or stress? And then the other one that's big right now because of wearable devices is heart rate variability, but that's basically you know the same thing. It's giving us a sense of if your vagus nerve, which is a nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system is adequately able to balance out your sympathetic drive and give you a sense that you can take on that workload or stress that day. But today, I think our plan was to talk about the somatic nervous system. So the system that includes the skeletal muscle. So after the brainstem, you have the spinal cord, the peripheral nerves, neuromuscular junction, and then the muscle. Yes. So that is the system that's responsible for moving our limbs and 
exercise. So before we get into that a little bit, I just want to back up for anyone that didn't see my post about the CO2 tolerance test. I did an entire recovery podcast a few, uh, about a month ago now. And it talks about, it talks about that in more detail in case you want to go back and like learn more about that. But I love that you reference that and you talk about the CO2 tolerance test is actually in heart rate variability as well is a test of really your nervous system and your nervous mm-hmm. system's ability to um, recover and tolerate stresses. So the more you can breathe out with an exhale, the longer you can breathe out with an exhale, it is an indication of kind of, I don't want to say the health of your nervous system, but the, the tolerance that your nervous system mm-hmm. can, uh, can handle at that moment. So I thought that that was awesome that you brought that up. I know that this is like kind of off what we talked about, but I do think that a lot of people are interested in heart rate variability. Can you talk just like a smidge about that and talk about like what you're looking for as far as heart rate variability? Yeah. So heart rate variability is the measure of time between each heartbeat, right? So I think typically when you go to the doctor and your heart rate is measured, it's beats per minute. So this is really on a micro scale, what is happening between each beat? What is that time period? And if it is higher, that means that your parasympathetic system is doing what we want it to do. And it is counteracting that sympathetic kind of activation or drive. And so your stressors are low. You've probably slept well. You're probably hydrated. You're ready to take things on. If it is lower, then it's more likely that your sympathetic drive is the predominant drive right now. And there might be something else going on that um, is making that occur, whether it's that you need to recover or sleep more or et cetera, like, excuse me, et cetera, like you've talked about. Yeah. And I think that that those things are great to measure before you go into your workouts, because if you're not recovered and you're in the state of high stress, a super intense workout might not be appropriate for you that day. Um, not to say that you shouldn't move, but maybe it's like you take something a little bit more gentle that day or take an extra recovery day or whatever. Do you, do you kind of agree with that analysis? I not only agree with it, I actively practice that. I mean, after I saw your post, I thought to myself, I should do this. I should I should do this tomorrow morning, you know, and, and check in with how I'm doing. And I did so poorly and I actually adjust. Yes. That day there was just it, you know, I have an 11 month old son. We woke up several times that night and the workout that I had planned for that day actually changed. I didn't, I didn't do it as hard. And then, you know, later on in the day, I had a little bit of a headache and it was just all these things that would have occurred you know, whether or not I had changed my workout, but I think I was just better able to take it on because it's like, I had checked in in the morning. I knew that my sympathetic drive was predominant today and I needed to take it easy. So totally. And I Mm -hmm. think that if you didn't have that tool, you might have just gone into your workout and just like pushed it and just, you know, no pain, no gain, go hard or go home. Like all this stuff that we hear going Mm -hmm. into any, you know, major fitness class these days, but because you had that measure, you were able to decrease the stress because exercise is a stress. You were able to decrease mm-hmm. the stress on your system and maybe, maybe move yourself forward more than just like pounding away right. when you're not ready to tolerate that kind of stress. So I think that's, I think that's all the same thing happens to me. Like we're human <laughs> beings, which means that yeah. we're going to fluctuate. And so having right. a tool to measure right. that fluctuation is really awesome. Okay. Mm-hmm. So great. We got on a little bit of tangent there. I feel like we could probably do a whole <laughs> podcast just about that, but Let's, let's come back to the somatic nervous system. We talked about the anatomy. We talked about kind of how the brain stem, uh, connects to the nerves, which connects to the muscles. Um, 
Can you talk about more, like, give us an example of how your brain connects to your muscles in order to ultimately move, like pick up a coffee cup or, you know, do an exercise? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so breaking it down, the brain thinks, okay, I'm going to do this action. We'll use the coffee cup example, picking it up. You see your coffee cup, your brain or your cerebrum more specifically will process that you want to do that action and send a motor signal down to the spinal cord out to the muscle. And then your arm moves right towards it, right? That's proprioception. So knowing where your body is in space, that is your cerebellum at work. And People who've had injury to their cerebellum might go to reach for their coffee cup and their hand ends up in their coffee or like totally off course. So you get to the cup and then you feel the cup. And so a sensory signal is going to shoot back up through your spinal cord to your brain to feel like this is a cup. And the brain says, yep, this is a cup. I felt this before. I've been here before. Now, in order to pick it up, you have to position your hand correctly around the cup. And so you have muscle spindles, which are in the actual muscle itself. And that detects changes in muscle length. And then you have Golgi tendon proprioceptors, which are in the tendon and sort of proprioceptors, peripheral proprioceptors for the tendon that help your brain find the right position to place your hand. So those receptors send afferent or sensory signals back up the dorsal column of the spinal cord to the brain. Once ready, your brain will fire a motor signal back to the anterior column of the spinal cord out to the peripheral nerves and our muscular junction to the muscle to then pick it up. That's coordinated by the cerebellum. (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting because it's just like a constant loop, like Mm -hmm. brain, body, brain, body, brain, body. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So I think in physical therapy school, we learn about, you know, uh, patients that have had a stroke. Um, which is like, you know, a lesion in your brain or patients that have had a brain tumor or whatever. And obviously there is, there's something happening in the cerebellum that's blocking this pathway from happening appropriately. But in your experience, can this uh, brain to body uh, connection be interrupted in healthy people? And can we improve it even if we don't have necessarily a lesion in our brain? Yes, I, um, So of course, like you mentioned, brain injury, spinal cord injury, there are certain um, patterns that we see happening with folks, but I think it gets really interesting when we're talking about injury to like muscles and joints. So things that can happen to the everyday active person that hasn't suffered from uh, like a central nervous system injury, like a brain or spinal cord injury. So there's sometimes a sense that the musculoskeletal system or the muscles and joints are totally separate from the nervous system, but they're actually very integrated. So I mentioned the muscle spindles and Golgi tendon proprioceptors. These are in your muscles and tendons respectively, and they can be affected by muscle or tendon injury. So muscle injury, even relative muscle injury, like after a hard workout can alter proprioception. There was a study in the international journal of sports medicine that induced muscle damage to the quad of healthy subjects by making them do eccentric loading. And then they measured position sense at various time points of the knee. So they measured from one hour to 95 hours post-exercise, what the position sense of the knee was doing. And they found that the position sense was decreased up to 48 hours later. So there was another study that looked at the shoulder and found that there was a decrease in position sense of the shoulder immediately after fatiguing the muscles around the shoulder. And these, I think are super important concepts to understand that fatiguing your muscle or having sore muscles can alter the position sense of that 
corresponding joint and potentially increase the risk of injury. If you look at joints, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 I'm I'm agreeing. I'm right with you. Keep keep going. So as far as joint injury, um, joints have their own proprioceptors. And decreased proprioception position sense has been described in not only painful arthritis, but extra articular pain syndrome. So like patellofemoral pain being an example. An interesting study looked at people who had painful osteoarthritis or OA and induced an effusion in half of them, meaning they put normal saline into the joints. And an effusion or swelling of the joint is often, but not always a result of painful OA. So in the study, the question was, does an effusion also worsen position sense? And the answer was yes. So even an effusion from say a meniscus injury or an ACL injury um, can alter position sense. Yes. And effusion is swelling. Swelling. Yes. Swelling. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So what I find really fascinating about this is that your nervous system, and you'll have to let me know if you agree based on what I've learned, your nervous system is very good at sometimes hiding these little injuries or these little, um, lack of communication per se from the brain to the spinal cord, to the, to the muscle. And it doesn't always present in pain right away. Um, but it can present in other symptoms like tightness or, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe you might not be able to like contract that muscle as effectively. Do you find that in, in your people as well? Like that pain isn't necessarily the first thing that happens. It isn't necessarily the first warning sign. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I'll admittedly say that I don't have a great way to measure that. And I don't know if you have a better way to measure that in someone, but I definitely think we see that. And I think that if a person were to think about how does that feel in myself, if it's not pain, that is my cue. What is it? I think an imbalance or tightness or just feeling off from what you're normally used to feeling are all ways that you could do it. I think the more experienced you are in exercise and the more connected you are with your body, the better sense you'll have. And that takes time and work and mindful training, which are all things I think that you promote. Um, but yes, yes I totally agree. It just highlights the importance of paying attention and, yes. and, and learning how to pay attention. Really. I think a lot of people don't know really what to look for. I think what I look for, and I totally agree with that is range of motion. I think range mm-hmm. of motion, especially if it's different from side to side, will tell you a lot about what's going on in your body. Um, you could have a very limited right shoulder compared to the left, but it might not hurt. And so mm-hmm. I think like sometimes just paying attention to your own range of motion and noticing like this feels a lot tighter than the other side, you know, maybe that's not a day where you hit your, like, if you're like my left hamstring feels tighter than my right, maybe that's not a day where you hit your PR on, exactly. you know, your mm-hmm. hamstring curls or whatever you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. so, and we touched a little bit on kind of brain body connection, but do you want to talk a little bit about that and talk about why this sense of proprioception is so important? I, I think to me, it's injury risk. I think in an older population where I'm already thinking about fall risk, that is my number one concern because a fall can cause cause a brain injury. It can cause a hip fracture, which, you know, there's things with high mortality. So I'm always concerned about that in an older population In a younger population. I'm concerned about injury. That's going to prevent you from reaching your goals and reaching your, 
your optimal abilities, because then that's then a setback. Um, I think I had sent you a couple of articles and you should totally add on to this if I'm missing things, but I've read about foam rolling, which could decrease delayed onset muscle soreness and improve joint position, uh, position sense, um, tactile stimulation. And I think this one's interesting. So light touch and pressure sensory pathways, those pathways going back up to your brain are actually different from position sense afferent sensory pathways. So that feedback to your brain is enhanced if you add like pressure or touch. And that's where elastic bandages have come in and have been shown to approve, uh, excuse me, improve position sense of say a swollen joint, for example. Yes. I, I totally agree. I talk about this in my classes all the time. Like mm-hmm. it's just mechanoreceptor stimulation via touch. Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, like if you're like, okay, if you're not feeling like a lot of times people will say, I don't feel my glutes contract. Like that's a popular one. Um, Mm -hmm. and not only is like the mechanic are the mechanics important there and like how your body is positioned relative to gravity, but also like, like you said, it might be because you are lacking proprioception from that feedback loop from your brain, cerebellum, all of that. So Mm -hmm. what I, what I often like suggest is that exactly what you said, mechanoreceptor stimulation. So touch. And I think Mm -hmm. that's like why, um, tactile touch, or like you said, bands can give that, that little neuroreceptor that lives in your tendons feedback and then messages up to your brain in order for you to contract that muscle more effectively. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Cause I feel like I talk about it in class all the time, but I don't necessarily, <laughs> I haven't necessarily broken it down like that. So I'm, I think that's awesome. Um, so I think another thing I want to mention before we move on is that, you know, I think this is highlighting the importance of not overusing your body. Cause like you said, if you're doing a lot of muscle contractions where you're, where you're creating damage in the muscle, your position sense will be altered. So if you work your quads one day, and then you go back and work your quads the second day, when your position sense is altered, cause your immune system is healing that muscle, you might be at a greater uh, risk of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you kind of recommend for, for your patients is like limiting overuse? Definitely. Yeah. I would say I probably give that recommendation to my friends and family more than I do my, my patients. But, um, because as you know, I like, I'm a, you know, fitness geek as well, I guess yes. proclaimed, but, um, I, I, I do, you definitely, I think what's a little frustrating is when you, you just watch in the industry, um, certain routines being promoted kind of over and over and over again. And and I I do sort of think to myself that moderation is better. Right. And so if, if variety is going to help, and I think the way you do it, um, and being mindful of which muscle group that you're working throughout the week is, is also, also really important, um, for injury prevention and just kind of optimizing your, your strength gains or whatever your, whatever your goal is, but definitely strength. Yes. Yes. Um, I think that's like one of the, one of the problems with just like going to like random fitness classes is they're not necessarily like you might go to one studio and they work your abs and then you go to the next, a different studio the next day and they do work the same muscle group. So mm-hmm. not that, I mean, getting moving is really what we want. We want people to get moving. I don't yeah. want people to like ever feel <laughs> paralyzed by this information. It's just for yeah. those fitness aficionados that really want to understand kind of what's going on. Yeah. And you know, there's a social aspect to it, right? Like yes. when I go on a, vac- a trip, I'm my girlfriends and I are always like, what fitness class are we going to hit up? And I, I do think that 
the most important thing is probably learning what your body needs because you can always adjust when you go to a fitness class what you're going to need if you know. Yes. If you know, exactly. So it's just like about edu- like that's what you and I are trying to do on our social platforms mm-hmm. and everything is just educate. Mm-hmm. So then you can take that information and apply it how, however it works best for you. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's wrap this up by talking about the mind muscle connection. Cause I think that's such a buzzwordy thing in the industry, <laughs> but can you, can you talk more about that and why it's so important? I'll talk about how I understand it. And I'm very curious about your take as well. I, think that it is a buzzword, but I also love it that it's a buzzword because I think it is really important. So, um, so EMG studies or studies that, uh, where we put electrodes in or on your muscle to measure motor unit recruitment have found that when you're activating a muscle, you activate it more. If you're thinking about activating it, not just doing the movement. So if I put an electrode on your bicep and I said, please activate your bicep. Thinking about it can also cause motor recruitment more than just doing it. So this is true for lower loads. They found 20 to 60% of one rep max. One study found Um, the study also noted that accessory muscle activity did not change. So for the example of the bench press that they use in this study, they put an electrode on the pectoralis major and the tricep, which are two muscles that are activated during the contraction or, or push phase of the movement. So thinking about the tricep didn't decrease the pectoralis activation, but actually increased both the pec and the tricep. So this is probably due to muscle synergies or activation of a muscle, two different muscles together in action. Some people refer to this as muscle memory. I've also referred, I've also heard it referred to as a motor engram. Have you heard that before? No, I haven't. I haven't. One. Yes. So one, um, I went to this course uh, by Stuart McGill. Anyway, so he called it a uh, motor engram. There's also evidence for no load training. So showing that muscle growth can occur even without a load, but by just activating muscle fibers um, again, without any resistance. And I loved this concept. I mean, this was central to how I transitioned to working from home during, excuse me, working out from home during the pandemic. I for my, on my own personal fitness journey, I was very bummed about, you know, not being able to go to the gym anymore, but I realized that I didn't need a lot of weight to reach my goals. And that like choosing the right exercises meant a lot and really thinking about what I'm doing. Yes. Yes. I talk about that all the time. I talk about how we call it like basically flexing with 100% or contracting mm. with 100% effort, no matter what weight you're using. And I always recommend that people before they increase their resistance, their external load, the weight that you're holding or whatever, like make sure you're confident that you are flexing as hard as you can using their internal resistance. Because Mm -hmm. if we can gain muscle with, by just flexing and focusing on it, we might not need to add a ton of weight, which can sometimes be stressful on the skeleton. So adding extra external resistance, Mm -hmm. um, so I always say like, be sure that you're flexing with 100% effort. That might be enough. But like, and especially like you said, working out from home where we don't have access to like, you know, maybe the really heavy stuff. So right, I think right, we're yeah. right in line there. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think this hopefully will continue to get more evidence around this because I think, you know, the old school way to think is like you, in order to get strong or in order to gain muscle, you have to lift heavy mm-hmm. and we're finding that that might not be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So this is super interesting. I think, you know, we could keep talking about it, but I, I, we might have to have you back. Um, so <laughs> can, 
can you please tell our audience how we can find you, how we can work with you? Um, she has an awesome Instagram. So go ahead and tell us all the things. Yes, absolutely. So um, my Instagram handle is Dr. Natasha Mehta. You can find me on there. I'm also on TikTok. I do do some dancing on TikTok. I'm on Twitter, but I don't um, get on there quite as much. But yeah, anytime I am happy to chat about this, DM me, follow me, all the things. Amazing. And we'll link all of that in the show notes too. Thank you so much, Natasha. This was really awesome. We really appreciate having you. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. I hope you enjoyed this very informative interview with Dr. Natasha. I will link up how you can follow her in the show notes from here, and we will see you all next week. Same time, same place.